Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulullah. All right. So um, this is like a really amazing uh, opportunity for us to, you know, take in for a moment uh, we just entered the month of Rabi' al-Awwal, which is the month in the Islamic lunar calendar in which the Prophet Sallallahu was born. And so this is like a really, really cool time for us to be studying the Sirah because it's kind of like when sort of the intersection of what we're learning and also just the reality of the time that we're in. So it's like a really, really, mashallah, awesome sort of commemoration for us to be spending, um, you know, some time reflecting on the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and to be thanking Allah for sending you know, somebody who's a role model for us. Imagine how difficult religion would be if it was just a book, right? If it was just like a rule book with no compassion and no mercy and no um, no path to follow. If there was no example, it would be so, so tough, right? One of the reasons why so many occupations require internships or training um, that involves another person is because that's the best way to learn, right? So residency or internships or whatever, you know, student teaching, the reason why you do that is because it's the best way to learn. You can't learn everything from a book. So we say alhamdulillah to Allah Ta'ala, you know, first and foremost for every blessing, but one of those greatest blessings is the Prophet Sallallahu um, And so it's great for us to be sitting here reflecting every week on his life and try to take some lessons from it. We stopped last week. Um, we kind of covered a lot of ground. Uh, we're actually, believe it or not, you know, from the time that we started talking about Revelation, the, the first Revelation, Till now, in the chronology of the life of the Prophet, so some we've covered about nine years, right? We're almost at year number 10. Um, we're actually entering the 10th year. And so we've covered a lot of ground in the life of the Prophet, so the Meccan era does have a lot of very, uh, not repetitive, but very common themes, right? Difficulty, um, struggle, uh, you know, trying to make a name for themselves as a community. And we now came upon a, a, you know, one of the most difficult moments in the life of the believers in Mecca, in the city of Mecca, was the time in which they went through the boycott, right? The three years of boycott. And they had to be, they lived in a restricted valley known as the Shi'ab of Abi Talib. They lived in a valley of uh, the family of Abu Talib. And they were restricted there. And we talked about the boycott. What does the boycott mean again? What does it mean? When they boycotted them, what does it mean? Huh? Be against it. Okay. So what? In in effect, what did it look like? If you were part, if you were a Muslim or part of the tribe of the Prophet Sallallahu family, what did it look like when you were being boycotted? Huh? Shunned. How? Yeah, no business. Right. So boycott means like no business. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You know, imagine as like a merchant, it didn't matter how much money. You had, or if you were a merchant, it didn't, as a Muslim or as a person from the tribe of Talib, Abdul Muttalib, it didn't matter how good of a product you had. They simply refused to do business 
with anybody who was associated with the Prophet ﷺ. Socially, they wouldn't be friends with them. You know, uh, in in terms of marriage, there was no chance for them to be married outside of their. I mean, obviously, because you can marry within, because that they were not boycotting internally, but they weren't even engaging socially, marriage, friendship, none of that, none of that, right? And so you had this very, very, just absolutely toxic. Uh, imposition of this, you know, social strangulation of the Muslims that was happening uh, for three years. And the amount of difficulty, the amount of sacrifice and compromise, the pain that was felt, all why? All because a person said that Allah is worthy of worship alone. And he wanted to change the society to reflect that, right? It wasn't just a matter of belief. May Allah ta'ala give that person relief. It wasn't a matter of just belief. It was a matter of also changing the society because Moving away from idolatry also meant moving away from all the practices that they're, you know, the, the privileged classes in society had had cascaded down, right? The the the, the sort of the practices of being, um, you know, untruthful in business and abusive towards the the weak and abusive towards their family, their women, their children, all this stuff that was part and parcel of culture in jahiliyyah. This is what the Prophet was challenging. He was calling upon people to be better better versions of themselves. And so this kind of call, it made people feel very uncomfortable. It asked them to get up off the couch, so to speak, and they didn't want to get up off the couch. So they took it to the level of trying to, you know, strangle out the Prophet Sallallahu They wanted his tribe to give him up, and that's why they punished everybody. But the tribe stayed strong. The tribe stayed strong, and you had even people from outside of the family of Abdul Muttalib, Banu Hashim, you had people from outside that started to feel empathy and they started to feel sympathy and they started to feel soft in their heart towards the Prophet Sallallahu situation. And so you had Hisham bin Amr, you had uh, other individuals, Zuhair and other people who were not Muslims, but they felt they didn't, they didn't have to be Muslim to feel this compassion towards what the Muslims were going through. And so they conspired, they gathered and they, they gathered together and strategized and came up with a plan to try to get the public opinion of the city of Mecca to go against this boycott. They wanted to make, get everybody who felt this way to kind of raise their voices all at once, to stand up against the loudness and the brashness of people like Abu Lahab and of people like Umayyah bin Khalaf and all these people that were constantly putting this difficulty on the believers. They wanted to kind of counter that with the wave of justice of their own. And so Hisham bin Amr, the reason why we bring up his name is because he's one of the first people that did this. And this is what the slide's talking about. He thought big, even though he started small. He knew that individually he couldn't solve this problem on his own. If he got up and just yelled at the top of his lungs, then everybody would have ignored him. But the fact that he was not able to individually change the situation himself did not stop him. It didn't stop his passion and his strategy. It didn't stop it. It just made it, it was a it was a burden that was in front of him that presented an obstacle, but it made him think even more creatively about how to solve it. And so instead of thinking to himself, "Well, I'm too small of an impact. I can't change it on my own," instead of saying, "Well, that's where I, my good intention stops. That's where my nia just ends," he thought to himself, "How can I collaborate? How can I get together with other people? And how can we come up with an idea that's going to be effective?" So we're taking a lesson here that many times in your life, and as young professionals, right, the idea is sometimes you come across situations where you do feel like as an isolated individual, as an island on your own, like you can't affect change. And to be honest with you, there are cases where you will not be able to. There are situations where you as an individual will not be able to, but that doesn't mean that it has to stop there. 
right? And you have to think in a way that's collaborative. One of the things that's really important about this is a person has to, in order to engage in this kind of collaborative thinking, they have to have no ego. They have to be able to accept, number one, they have to be able to ask for help. And number two, they have to be able to accept it when it's offered to them. And this is from sort of the characteristic of the Prophet ﷺ, this reduction of ego, this humility, this understanding of neediness. No one ever wants to feel like they are in need. No one ever wants to admit that they are in need. No one wants to be a burden on other people, right? Um, especially when, you know, from, from certain cultural or heritage practices. You know, I remember one of the reasons why – anyone here ever, if you were born into Islam and you were raised Muslim, did you ever struggle having sleepovers? Yeah, it was like a thing, right? <laughs> Noticing like the, the, the brothers, mashallah, and sisters who were blessed by Allah and lucky enough to accept Islam off their own intuition. May Allah ta'ala bless you all. We weren't lucky like you guys. We were born into it. You guys actually found it and chose it with sincerity, subhanAllah. The, the brothers and sisters who were converts to Islam, they're like, what? <laughs> Sleepovers? Like that was a big issue, right? So it's like, let me get this straight. Bacon, parties, right? <laughs> Drinking, Halloween, apparently, and... Sleepovers, like these things were like on the list of, of like kaba'ir, like these are the big sins. Yeah, sleepovers were like very difficult for Muslims, right? Very difficult. And you know what's crazy? I always wondered why. I always wondered why. Now as a parent, now, I'm kind of like, oh, I get it. <laughs> right? Because sometimes like situations are weird, like you don't know the family, like I don't want to. But I've talked to some parents and you know what they said? It comes from this, you guys know takalluf? It comes from this hyper sense of, 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 um, what's the call of? Formality, like courtesy. Yeah, yeah. It comes from this hyper sense of being so overly cautious of being seen as like matlabi. What is matlabi? Like, like seeking something, like talaba. Like, like you don't want your kids to come off as being like, you don't want the other family to feel like, you know what, they don't have enough food for dinner for their kids, so they're sending them over to our house. <laughs> Right? Or like they don't have a comfortable bed or like, you know, it's a two-bedroom apartment and it's like kind of, you know, whatever. So they're going to send him over. And a mom actually told me that. She's like, if I let my son sleep over, what are people going to say? And I was like, nothing. And she was like, no, they're going to say that like, oh, she can't take care of her own son at home. So she sent him away. That was literally her thought process. And I was like, I looked at like my parents and I was like, this is why? Like this was the concern the entire time? That people are going to think that you can't handle us? Like, that's it? So I wouldn't say that for everybody, but this apparently, apparently, and I asked some other parents, I'm like, yeah, that's it, spot on. And I was like, really, subhanAllah, right? So that it actually doesn't come from Islam. That, that constant concern of, like, not wanting to be helped and not wanting to be, and being so concerned that, like, you don't do, like, basic things. I remember I was eating lunch with a kid one time, and I was teaching in school, and uh, I was eating lunch, and I offered him some food, and he didn't take it. And I remember asking him, like, why don't you take my food? My, my mom said it's, it's like an aib to, like, eat somebody else's food. Aib is like, uh, I don't know how to translate Urdu. It's like a bad thing. Disrespectful, right? It's an aib. Don't eat other people's food. And I was like, but I'm offering it to you. He's like, yeah, but, like, you don't mean it. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, you know, Arab, like, in our culture, you say things, but like, you don't actually. I'm like, What? I'm like, bro, if I'm offering you a grape, I mean it, okay? Like, take the grape, you know? You're turning pale. Like, you need calories. So, and he's a poor kid, and he's, like, living in this... Bu and so this kind of, of hyper of kind of culture, like, again, it's part of a larger ecosystem of being unable to admit that sometimes you're going to need something. 
you're going to need help. It's very difficult for us to like, you know, how many people have grown up seeing maybe their friends or family members just un, like unwilling to admit that they need assistance and going through so much difficulty, so much difficulty struggling in silence, right? People have gone through, I was just, you know, mental health. People don't want to talk about issues that they're going through, depression, anxiety, people who went through a divorce, people who maybe had a miscarriage, all these things that are weighing heavily on us. And no one wants to talk about it because they don't want to be seen as needing people's time or being a burden. That's not – this is what community is for. It's what friendships are for. It's what community is for. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us that, inshallah. So this kind, of, this kind of mentality, right, to seek out help was something that was very difficult. And so the Prophet ﷺ, again, like in this time, they were in, in a lot of need. Hisham bin Amr, he sees this and he calls out and he recognizes that I can't solve this on my own. I need to seek out help. So he sought out help and he was able to gather some like-minded people. They came and they announced, you know, publicly, basically, in the, in this, in the, near the Haram area, they announced, like, why are we doing this as a community? Like, imagine walking into the Dallas City Council meeting and being like, why are we doing this? Like, what? And you have all the movers and shakers are there, and you're basically questioning the logic of this boycott. Is it, is it you know, and they're saying things very emotionally, like, is it right that we're going to kill our own community family, like our, our brothers and sisters, our cousins? We're going to kill them because why? We're going to strangle them. We're going to suffocate them. We're going to, you know, uh, uh, you know, dehydrate them, and ma- just because they, they follow this person, just because they and these person, they weren't arguing for the validity of Islam. They were just arguing for the validity of their humanity, right? And so we take a big lesson here that the Prophet Sallallahu again taught us this, and we take this as a lesson here that we have, of course, absolutely rights. Muslims have rights within the community, but. Muslims also have responsibilities to try to uplift and to relieve human pressure, human oppression, human oppression on other people. That it's our job. That if, if there's no cause that's like not a Muslim cause, right, homogeneously Muslim country being oppressed, that doesn't mean that Muslims don't care about that, right? We do. Just like Hisham and Amr, a person who wasn't Muslim cared about the Muslims, right? So we have a responsibility. Of course, our community as well, right? We have to make sure that our community – but. We don't just ignore everybody, okay? So this is an example of that. So what happened was during this time, Abu Jahl, he felt attacked, and they were actually able to sway public opinion. But public opinion doesn't always change everything, right? Public opinion, you know, um, electoral college versus popular vote, right? So it doesn't always – it's not always what's written, okay, uh, on, with pen and ink. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he tells his uncle Abu Talib, he tells him something very interesting. He says that God has informed me. God has told me through the angel Jibreel, right? He received this, this revelation, not, not Quranic revelation, but information that he wouldn't know otherwise, that they're on the, on the, on the uh, boycott agreement. So what they did is they actually penned it. They wrote it. And the tribes that were going to participate in this boycott, they all signed. They all authorized this agreement. And they rolled it up and they stuck it on where? The Kaaba. Remember we talked about this. They used a religious symbol to back their oppression. And this is what people can do all the time with religion. If a person doesn't have adequate knowledge to understand their own faith, they will see people misusing religious symbols to back incorrect understandings of the world. Okay, And so they put this, this parchment on the Kaaba, and the Prophet says to his uncle Abu Talib, he says that Allah Ta'ala has informed me that these, these uh, termites, like these insects, they actually have cleared out the entirety of that agreement 
and the only thing left on that paper is the name of Allah. Okay, so again, this is a mini miracle that's happening because the Prophet ﷺ and his uncle are in the valley, the Shia of Abi Talib. They haven't seen this. So how do they know this? Allah Ta'ala informed his Prophet through Jibreel ﷺ that this happened. Abu Talib has an idea. He's like, okay, you know what? Let's do this. Let's go ahead and put this to the test. And subhanAllah, he actually tells Muhammad ﷺ, he says, you've never ever told a lie. How important is reputation, dude? It's so important. Like reputation is so heavy. There are times where you will need every ounce of your reputation. You will need every every inch of your capital of trust. You will need it, right? Yeah, Siri, right? You will need that. If you don't have that, if you don't have that, there will come a time when you are like desperately in need of the person to trust you and to believe you. And it's going to be so stressful and so difficult to show them the reality of what you're trying to communicate. So the Prophet ﷺ, because he was not a liar, because he was truthful, when he tells Abu Talib this, okay, a person who doesn't believe in Islam, but who knows his nephew as being a trustworthy person, he says, let's put this to the test. So he goes to Abu Jahl and the others, and he says, I have a proposition for you. And they said, what? He said, I have been told by my nephew, who has never told a lie, that God Almighty, because they believed in Allah, but they also just believed in other idols as well. He said that God Almighty has uh, ordained that the agreement that you signed, that some termites or some bugs came, and they completely you know, erased the entirety of the agreement except for his name, except for God's name. He says, and they were all like, okay, like what's the chance that that's going to happen? So he goes, okay. Let's let's put a wager on this, right? This is before Sharia betting was okay. All right, so he says, let's put a wager on this. If it didn't happen, if he's making it up, and, it, and you go and you look and it didn't happen, we'll hand him over to you. We'll give you exactly what you want. You can do whatever you want with him. He said, but if it does happen, if, it, if it's the case that it did in fact happen, he goes, you have to let us all go immediately, and you have to restore our status back in in this area, in the Hijaz, you have to give us back our status. Like, we have to be citizens again. So they were obviously overconfident. They were arrogant. They're like, there's no way that that happened. So they go and they unroll the parchment. And what do they see? They see what you see written in front of you. In one narration, it says, in the name of Allah, Bismillah. That that's all that was left there from the parchment that they had written. Because again, they still did believe in Allah, but they just had other idols that they grouped in with Allah, right? So they saw this and they became so frustrated, and even though there is no possible way that the Prophet ﷺ or Abu Talib could have done this themselves, you know what they said? The same thing they said when the Prophet ﷺ showed them a miracle when Allah split the moon. The same thing. They always make agreements. Show us a miracle, we'll believe you. The miracle is shown. They said what? You're a magician, right? So there are some individuals in your life that no matter what you do to prove your integrity, your authenticity, your realness, they will never accept it. Okay? I feel like this is like corporate America, right? Your manager. No, there are some people. I'm not trying to like have a mass like resignation tonight. Everyone's on their emails. They're like, he gets it. It's Abu Jahl. Like, I was like, who's Abu Jahl? Uh, but there are some people in your life. They could be family, friends, colleagues, whatever, that you could be doing your absolute best. Absolutely to try to show them with integrity and honesty something, and they simply will not see it. You'll say, what color is that? The thing is green. They'll say red. It just is what it is. The Prophet ﷺ went through this so much 
so much. I mean, so many times. And one of those times is very interesting. When the Prophet ﷺ was trying to sit with these leaders and convince them and talk to them, and not just convince them of Islam. At some point, he's trying to convince them of what? Just let us exist. That's all he's trying to do. Just let us breathe in Mecca, please. We just want to be here, okay? He's sitting with them, and a man by the name of Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum comes to him. Now, Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum is actually a person who is blind, okay? He doesn't have the faculty of eyesight. So he comes to the Prophet ﷺ, and he doesn't know, he doesn't see that the Prophet ﷺ is in a meeting. So he goes to the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ is sitting and talking to these leaders of Quraysh, and he asks the Prophet ﷺ a question. And this question... The way that you know my teacher taught this story to me was that this you know this this uh, in the sirah was that the question would be equal to like if one of y'all came and asked maybe Ustada Fatima in the back, hey, when I wipe my socks for wudu, let me let's ignore the wiping socks thing. When I make wudu on my foot skin, okay, do I go to the top of the ankle bone or the bottom of the ankle bone? Right. So again, valid question. Sure. Is wudu serious? Yes. Do we need to make wudu to pray? Absolutely. Is it the time if Ustada Fatima is meeting with like the governor of like, I don't know. I don't like Texas. The governor of who knows, right? Uh, if she's meeting with Elizabeth Warren, right? And she's like talking about Islam and like, you know, I need you guys to do this for Muslims and make all these things. Are you going to walk up to Ustada Fatima and be like, so we'll do it real quick, right? No, like obviously you're going to understand the context of the situation. You're going to take some cues and you might say, you might even be like, you might not even say anything. You might just walk by. Or you might at the very least be like, just laughter, right? But Abdullah bin Umaktoum, he doesn't see it. He doesn't recognize the situation. So the Prophet ﷺ, he's being asked this question. And the Prophet ﷺ in that moment, millisecond, not even a full second, okay? Quicker than, than we can even count. Briefly, for a millisecond, his eyebrows just twitch. Just a little bit, okay? Not a full-on frown, not a scowl, okay? Not the thing that your parents did when you were in trouble but they couldn't say it. Right? right? <laughs> All my friends from public school were like, what do the three fingers mean? I was like, I can't tell you, right? <laughs> Otherwise, my parents are going to get arrested. Uh <laughs> Right? Like, what does that mean? I was like, something to do with sandals. So <laughs> they, you know, not, not even that. Like, not even those things. The prophet didn't even look at him and be like, you know? He didn't do any of that. Just quickly, just quickly, the brow furrowed a little bit. And because of that moment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed an entire chapter of Quran. Abasa wa tawalla. a'ma. That he frowned and turned away when the blind man came to him. So the Prophet ﷺ, Allah was orienting the Prophet, teaching the Prophet ﷺ that you might be spending all of your energy trying to convince these people who won't even give you the time of day. Meanwhile, there's somebody who already loves you, believes you, trusts you, and needs you. And he's coming to you and asking you a question that matters to him. And you're ignoring, not on purpose, you're delaying getting to that individual for the sake of trying to convince these people that don't even want you to live. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching the Prophet how to set priorities when it comes to communication. So what do we take from that? In your life, you will have people who are like the Quraysh, and you will have people who are like Abdullah bin Umm You will have those people who matter to you and will matter to you, even if you don't see it right now. How many of us, this is like our family? 
you know, the family members that we take for granted or people that we think will always be there, close friends, and we're trying to make moves at work or socially or whatever, and we invest all of our time and resource into that group or that movement that we're trying to make, and we forget about those people that have been pillars for us and will be pillars for us. And then when that crumbles, who do we come back to? The ones that have been there, right? Being taken for granted. It's not a good feeling. So this is from the lessons of how we understand social dynamic, right? That these people, no matter what the Prophet ﷺ did, it would never convince them. And the Prophet ﷺ had to come to terms with that. He had to understand that. And he had to be okay with it. He had to be okay with that. So this miracle happened. And they, obviously at this point, it's an agreement. It was public. They let the believers go. And this was the end of the boycott of the time in which the tribe, the family of Ben Hashim had to stay in the sharp of Abi Talib. Okay? And this led to something that was even more difficult for the Prophet as, as much as we think that that would have been like the peak of difficulty, it actually led to an entire year that would prove to be the most difficult time of the Prophet life. When the Prophet talked to his wife Aisha, anha, who comes later because she's in Medina, when the Prophet, or they, they get married obviously in Medina, when, when the Prophet comes to that point, she asks him about the Battle of Uhud. And she asks him, she says, like, was that the hardest day of your life? And the Prophet ﷺ says, no, the hardest day of my life was the time in which I was rejected at Ta'if. And Ta'if is going to come right around the end of this year. Okay, the end of this, this, this really difficult year. What is this year called? It's actually called Amil Huzan. Amil Huzan literally means the year of sadness, grief, sorrow. Why is it called that? SubhanAllah, this is actually the title that scholars have given this year. Why is it called that? It has nothing to do with anyone's finances. It has nothing to do with anyone's social status. You know what it has to do? It has to do with losing two family members. This is what pushed the Prophet and what then the result of that. The first is the passing of Abu Talib. So the, the uncle of the Prophet Abu Talib, even though he was not a wealthy person, he had a lot of clout. He had a lot of social capital. And that social capital protected the Prophet So literally nobody could touch the Prophet He was walking around and he would see and people would kind of like encourage, like courageously they would gather the courage and they would take shots at the Prophet and sometimes would do these small things to him. But they couldn't actually put hands on him. They couldn't actually touch him. They could only go after people, especially those people who are like, the weaker of society considered, and they would go after them, and the Prophet would have to see this. But when Abu Talib, when he became sick, then the Quraysh thought to themselves, and they knew that this man, Muhammad who's causing us so much, right, we're, we're so bothered by him, his protection is ending soon, right? Because if anything happened to the Prophet the entire tribe would back him up. So when the Prophet Sallallahu uncle passed away, it wasn't just like a sudden passing away. It was actually a slow process because he got sick and his sickness kind of got stronger and stronger and eventually overtook him. And the Quraysh, when they noticed that he was getting sick, they said, this man, Abu Talib, is like the last person that we have in our belief system that can make sense to his nephew. So we have to get them both in a room and we have to try to negotiate for once and for all, a solution to this problem while he's still alive. So they called over the Prophet ﷺ to the house of Abu Talib, and there was like 30 or 40 of the Qurayshi tribal leaders in that gathering. It was so packed that the narration says the Prophet ﷺ had to sit in the back of the room. 
And he saw a spot right next to his uncle, you know, like very close. The spot that no one who's not related would dare sit in. You know, like when you're sitting, there's like a proximity you have for like family, basically like, you know, like Musa right now could come and sit on me, okay? But if Hassan did, it might be weird, okay? <laughs> Maybe not. But if Hassan did, it might be So you have a proximity for family, then friends, and you have a proximity for strangers. These are very important social skills, FYI. Many people are kind of like blank. These are very important social skills to know how close you should stand to a stranger, okay? Just understand that, all right? Inshallah. So there was like a spot next to Abu Talib as he was resting and laying on his, on his resting area that was clearly family only, that close. The Prophet ﷺ, when his eyes looked at it, Abu Jahl from another place in the room looked at it and jumped there, even though he wasn't from that, right? Wasn't from that closeness, the family closeness that the Prophet ﷺ had. So he was desperate to protect Abu Talib from hearing the voice of his nephew. He didn't want Prophet ﷺ to come because he knew how, how soft Abu Talib's heart was for his nephew, Muhammad ﷺ. Abu Talib... Even though this happens, he goes, where's my nephew? And he calls him. He goes, oh, son of my brother, come, come. And he says, these people, they want to talk. They want to, you know, they want to reason with you. They want to talk to you. And so they say, they basically offer him, they tell him, you know, can you please try to convince your nephew to stop with this whole business? We'll give him again whatever he wants. We'll present to him whatever he wants. We'll put him in whatever position he wants. We'll give him, if he says he wants one thing, we'll give him 10 of that thing. Right? If he says, I want a palace, we'll give him 10. If he says, I want this, we'll give him 10. Right? We'll make sure that he's satisfied, he's happy. And his uncle looks at him, and he's like trying to negotiate this. Right? He's like, Muhammad, right? his nephew, he's like, listen to what they're saying. He goes, I don't, I don't doubt you. I don't think that you're doing this for bad reasons, but you have to listen to these people. Right? Again, putting this irrational tribal expectation on the Prophet ﷺ that couldn't be explained otherwise, right? That couldn't be explained otherwise. So the Prophet ﷺ said, my uncle, as much as I love you, like I cannot accept this. And this is where that famous line came where he said, what? Again, if you put the sun on my right hand, the moon on my left, I could not change. This isn't my, this isn't my message to alter, right? God is sending this to me. I can't alter it. And this is an interesting point, by the way. When you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ and you see all these tests that he was given, one of the reasons why we believe he's a prophet is because he never flaked. He never even flinched. In moments like this, could you imagine? Could you imagine like, you know, there, there's moments where your ethics are pushed up against the wall. You don't know whether or not something's right or wrong. So you try to navigate what you know to be legally, Islamically okay, while still obtaining what you want and not feeling too guilty to stop yourself from doing it, okay? So it's like, well, I just got a job offer from this company. And I know that they do this thing that is not very Islamic, but what does Islamic mean anyways, right? <laughs> right? And, or we try to negotiate. This is normal. It's part of our nefs. The nefs is very slippery. Always tries to find sort of its place out, right? The Prophet ﷺ, not even for a moment do we have him saying, well, maybe if I took power and kind of like, you know, maybe if I did that, like Robin Hood, like, you know, steal from the rich, give to the poor. Like maybe I can give myself a position and then I could like just like knock them all out and then la ilaha Allah again, boom, surprise you. Like that could be his strategy, right? No, seriously, like, it, like as an individual, the testament of his character is that he's being offered positions of power 
And not once for a second does it even cross his mind. Why? Because for him, it's sami'na wa ata'na. It is whatever I hear from God, I will obey that. If God tells me, O Muhammad, accept what they're offering, he's, I'll take it. But God is not allowing me to take that compromise. And he's not begrudging God because of it. He's saying this is just the way it is. This kind of principal dedication is on its own an evidence of his messengership. Like who on earth can be so authentic to their message that they're not even tempted? Who can do that? It's such a rare quality to find people of principle. It's so rare. And this is why for us as Muslims, one of the things that will make you stand out in life and in work as a young professional is your principle. Your dedication to being honest to who you are. That, even if it puts you in difficulty, will always at the end pay off. We know in the Akhirah for sure, but Allah also promises us that it will pay off for us in the dunya. How? I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't tell you in your specific situation. But for a moment, if you are asked to do something that you know goes against your virtue, your heart, your soul, it is up to you in that moment to be prophetic. Remember this meeting with the Prophet ﷺ. You don't have to be dramatic, right? Hey, Abdul, can you come into work on Friday? Can you skip Jummah? You're like, if you put the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left. They're like, okay, geez, we won't ask you again. Go pray your Jummah, right? Like, it doesn't have to be like over dramatic, right? You don't got to go on like a monologue. But you should at least in your heart feel that way. You know, you could offer me a bonus and a raise and a this and a, I don't care. I'm not giving up who I am Islamically for some dunya. It's not worth it, dude. It's not worth it. بَلْ تُؤْثِرُونَ الْحَيَاةَ الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةُ خَيْرُ وَأَبَقَى Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is one of the struggles that human beings will always have. Bal dunya. You prefer ithar, tu'thiruna. All of you, in your heart, you actually prefer this dunya. Even though the next life is two things. It's infinitely better and it's longer lasting because this is going to end and that one won't end. Right? So we have to remind ourselves when your principle is tested, this is not as good as it's going to get. This is not the best that my, my life will experience, and this is not going to last forever. Whatever I'm being offered, as good as it sounds, will not be permanent. And whatever I'm being offered, it's not the best that I will have. Allah Ta'ala will give me better, if not in this life, then I know in the next life. Okay? So these meetings were happening, and the Prophet ﷺ left them, and they were frustrated, and he was staunch, and his uncle... Abu Talib was always caught in the middle. Then comes the final moment of his passing. The Prophet shows up. He hears that his uncle is on his deathbed. He's going to breathe his last. And he comes to him. And now it's no longer about the Prophet He changes his whole perspective. He walks in and he sees Abu Jahl and he sees uh, Abdullah bin Abi Umayyah. He sees these people who are still, again, concerned with nothing more than politics and all that garbage. But he walks up to his uncle and he says to him, Ya Ammi, my uncle. And he says to him something very beautiful, very powerful. He says, just give me one word that I can take to Allah on the day of judgment and I will defend you. I know you haven't believed in the message the whole time. Just give me something. Just move your lips. And if you give me that, I will go to God Almighty on the day of resurrection, I will stand up for you. I will be your witness that you said it in front of me. 
And as his uncle's lips are about to move, Abu Jahl and the others call out and they say, really? Really? You're going to give up all of the traditions that we have as a society and as a family? What would Abdul Muttalib say? What would your forefathers say if they saw you dying as a weak man? That you gave up everything for your nephew, your family. They're depending on you to carry this tradition forward. Are you going to change the trajectory of your lineage now? And the lips stopped moving. And the narration says that the last thing that his uncle said before he died was upon the religion of Abdul Muttalib. This is the Prophet's own uncle. Passed away, not believing his, loving him, but not believing him. Loving him, but not accepting what he had to bring. There's a couple lessons that I want to take from this that I think are really powerful. Well, at the end, sorry, the Prophet said when his uncle passed away, he said to him that may God forgive you and I will pray for you unless God tells me not to. And shortly after, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the verse down in Surah Tawbah where he says it's not befitting of a messenger to pray for those people who rejected him, to pray for their forgiveness when they chose to reject him during their life even if they are part of his family. It's not befitting for a messenger to spend his time praying for the forgiveness of people who took, saw their chance and rejected it based off of non-valid reasons, even if they're from his family. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, says, You don't guide those who you love. Rather, Allah guides whoever he wills. There's a couple things that always come to me with this. Number one is that when I read this story, I just imagine how it is one of the most difficult experiences probably ever for the Prophet to witness, but also the difficulty Abu Talib went through. I don't think any of us really can appreciate, and this is what I mean when I say I don't have the honor of being a convert. It's an honor. It's not easy. Like, to go against all of the heritage and the family and everything and to give that up, for what you believe is not a simple rational matter. It's not a matter of infor being infor informed. Oh yeah, you know what? I believe and thus I'm going to do it. No, it's not that simple. Like when somebody accepts Islam, there is an entire ecosystem that they have to then go back and live through and work through and weight that they have to carry. And for some people, it is much more difficult than others. You do have the families that are beautiful and supportive, and, and then you have the families that excommunicate and don't talk. And there's a wide array. And look at what Abu Talib, I mean, if we think it's easy, look at the, own, the family of the Prophet the difficulty they had to go through. This is why when it comes to people who accepted Islam later on in their life, after they were born, it is so necessary for community to be supportive. And I mean that in every way. Like, I mean in every possible way, it is so necessary. In, in the most basic, fundamental ways that we would imagine, you know, one of the things that people who accept Islam later on in life, I don't want to call them convert Muslims because I just feel like, it's like I don't want to distinguish with different demographics, but people who convert to Islam, my dad being one of them, is the feeling of always kind of being an outsider, right? And not really belonging, sort of like, Oh, yeah, you're like JV, right? Like B team. And things like Eid, you know, the, the plans, the iftars in Ramadan. 
Juma, you know, praying with people and, and just kind of being people who are supportive for that experience to make sure that no Muslim, whether they were born Muslim or they should be lonely in those experiences. We have to do better. Absolutely. You know, we get really excited because a lot of people convert to Islam. It's the fastest growing religion. It's like, it's like it's a commercial, right? Like, join Islam now. Fastest growing religion ever. You know, like, good food. Uh, but actually, if you look at the statistics from places like the ISPU, you actually see that Islam is also the religion that loses a ton of people, especially people who accepted Islam. I think the average lifespan of a convert to Islam is somewhere, I remember hearing some data from some friends, somewhere in between like two to four weeks. That when they accept Islam, it lasts for about two. Why? Because there's like the takbirs and the hugs and all that. And then what? And then what? You know, like my own father is like 70 plus years old. Still, he's been Muslim for 50, 50 years. Still walks into a masjid. And some scrawny little student of knowledge walks up and is like, hey, do you want to learn about Islam? My dad's like, my kids went to this school. One of them got expelled from here. You know, like... <laughs> I've been through it. Like, I'm Muslim, Muslim, Muslim. You know, like, the assumptions. I don't even want to tell the horror stories because there's no benefit in it. But sometimes we got to be scared straight. Like, how do we treat people? You know, I, so many converts to Islam tell me when I talk to them, I'm so happy I found Islam before I found Muslims. They say that. Like, I'm so happy I found the Quran before I found Muslims. We, we have to do better. People who are born into it, people converted, we all as a community have to do better. Welcoming. One of our principles here at Roots is we're welcoming. We say that the only people who are not welcome here are people who don't make people feel welcome here. It's kind of weird, right? Welcoming at all costs. I don't care what you wear. I don't care who you're. I don't care. It doesn't. Are you coming to learn about Allah and his messenger? Great. Come on, welcome in. You want tamales? They're probably gone by now, right? But... That's how we roll. That's how the Prophet Sallallahu The first thing he said when he gets to Medina, spread peace. That's the first thing he said. Make everyone feel peaceful. He's talking to Medina, not a city of Muslims, a city of everybody. He's telling everybody, be peaceful with each other. Make sure people feel at rest when you're around them. Okay? So Abu Talib goes through this. And he doesn't end up making, according to the majority sources, doesn't end up making the choice that we're all hoping for, we're yearning for, that the Prophet ﷺ wants. And the Prophet ﷺ goes through this difficulty and he goes through this trouble. And this also, by the way, is a very powerful lesson that even the most beloved of God, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, does not get what he wants. Right? Sometimes we become very frustrated with God. Why doesn't God give me what I'm asking for? If you look at Sirah, if you study the life of the Prophet ﷺ, a lot of questions we have about Allah are answered. Why doesn't God give me this? Well, if he didn't give it to the one that he tells us he loves most, not saying he doesn't love us, but just think for a moment. If he doesn't give it to the one that he tells us he loves most, Al-Habib, Al-Mustafa, the most beloved chosen one, then maybe that doesn't mean that if God doesn't give you something, he doesn't love you. Because we know that him not giving the Prophet some everything didn't take away from his love for him. But it was part of his life, his test, his path. Next time you don't get what you want in the deepest part of your heart. At that moment, the Prophet some all he wanted wasn't even the whole shahada, wasn't even the whole kalima. He said, just give me a word. Give me a word. Just say Allah. 
once, right? And subhanAllah, he didn't even get that. Two syllables, one breath, Allah, subhanAllah. You not getting everything doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It's just part of the path that he's put you on, just like the Prophet Sallallahu had that path. So that was the beginning of the Amal Hosan. And the next person that he lost, and we're going to finish with this, is his wife Khadija, radiallahu anha, our mother. Khadija was a very, very special person. Obviously, the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu our mothers were all special to him, but she was very special. Why? Because one time Aisha, radiallahu anha, later on, she tells the Prophet Sallallahu like, you seem to talk about her a lot. You know, kind of in that sort of stop way, you know. <laughs> and the Prophet ﷺ, with seriousness, you know, he smiled, he laughed, he played. You know, one time they were in the desert and they were rolling with a large caravan. And he told the caravan, he told all the guys and all the, all the men and women, he said, keep going, keep going. And they're like, huh? He's like, just give us some distance, keep going. And he held his wife back. And then they kept going for a long time. Then he looked at her, he goes, let's race. All right? And she said, I won. Right, and then they did it again when she was a little bit older, and she said, "I got older, so he won." Right, so they used to have like they used to have fun, but she says something like this, and he gets really serious, and he says, "Yeah, she was special. Why? Because she believed in me when nobody else did. She accepted Islam when everybody else rejected me, and she comforted me when no one else did, when there was no one else to help me. I mean, what about loyalty? Someone to hold you down? That was Khadija, radiAllahu anha." These are the qualities, by the way, if you're looking to get married, look for that. Look for a person, a man or a woman, who will be there for you, will help you, will hold you down, will be loyal. Like, these are the things that we look for. Who cares what they wear, right? They should wear clothes, but who cares what brand they wear, okay? <laughs> Abu Huraira narrates that, that Angel Jibreel, came to the Prophet, Sallallahu Angel Jibreel, check this out, came to the Prophet, Sallallahu and he said, Ya Rasulullah, Khadija's coming with some food a bowl of soup so he's like he's giving him like spoiler alert she's on her way you know what he says check this out this is amazing he says when she comes to you give her greetings from Allah this is the kind of person she was give her greetings from Allah and then Jabril says and me too <laughs> right and give her glad tidings that she's going to get a, her, her house in paradise will be a massive enormous pearl that's been hollowed out and that's going to be her abode and she will never hear any loud noises any harshness and she'll never feel exhausted and and no he comments on this hadith and he says that the reason why allah gave her those two promises of no more loud noises and no more exhaustion is because that's what her life was like with the prophet after she after they accepted islam all she heard was just noise, people talking, trash, more trash than the garbage man. And then all she felt was tired, just supporting him. Like, when's the rest? In Jannah, that's where we're going to rest, right? SubhanAllah. Aisha then said, I was never jealous of any other wife but Khadija, more than her. I never saw her, but he always mentioned her, and he would always send food to her friends. One time the Prophet heard Khadija's sister's voice and he smiled and then he started to look down and got sad and he said, I think she reminds me of her, right? So these are all the virtues of Khadija. So when she passed away, oh, subhanAllah. And then he said, the Prophet said that 
the love he had for Khadija was given to him by God. He gave me her love. Like it was something that I couldn't even ask for. Like it was given to me as a gift. So the impact of these losses was something very great. The first was like we said, societally, socially, the Quraysh now were able to put their hands on him. So when his uncle passed away and when his wife passed away, all of his social capital dropped immensely. So now Quraysh was able to start coming at him. So imagine like they didn't even give him the decency of like recovery of a time to grieve. <laughs> they just came at him hard. Islamophobes don't care. Don't expect compassion from people like that, right? Don't become disappointed when people like that don't see it. They came right at him. And they harmed him in ways that they never harmed him when Abu Talib was alive, right? He would go home to his daughter. Like, he would be walking in the street. I'm going to give you, I know it's 818. Give me three minutes. He would be walking in the street and random people, children, the, the, the Arabic says sufaha, which means like the foolish people, which is kind of its way of saying like, kind of like the people in society who are just like, like lame, like all they just do is sit and like comment and don't do anything, right? They would take dirt and just throw it at his face when he walked by. Just every person, walked, they just take dirt and throw it at the Prophet's face. And no one would do anything. You know when they do those social experiments on YouTube? And the first question you have, like especially when it's really weird and really jarring, the first question is like, where is everybody? Like they're like, the social experiment's like, how long, how many people will help when I steal this girl's purse? And it's like, meet my wife. I'm going to grab her purse in New York and run, right? And then it's New York, so it grabs a purse and runs. And, like, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, world star, world star. And they take out their phone. No one's stopping to help. And, like, you feel like you lose hope in humanity. Then there's that one guy who, like, ran track for Vanderbilt. And he, like, sprints and, like, tackles the guy. And they give him, like, $100. Like, it's a prank, it's a prank. Anyways. These kinds of situations, I want you to imagine in the city of Mecca, the Prophet saw something, no one's stopping to say, are you okay? Dirt in his eyes, sand in his face. He would go home and his daughter Fatima would run crying to him. Because imagine growing up seeing your dad going through this. And he would tell her, don't cry. He would wipe the tears from her eyes. And he would say, Allah is going to defend me. That unshakable trust. Right? They would take the insides of dead animals and throw it on him. They would put it in... You know, they would sneak into his home and put it in the pot that he was going to cook his dinner in. They would take human waste and throw it at his door. They would attack him and choke him and make his life miserable. So much so that there were times when he would walk out, go through this, and the narration says he would just come back home. And he would just not do what he had to do that day. He would just sit in his room and lower his head. And he would just look distraught. Like, what do I do? The reason I'm telling you guys this is because when I read these narrations, I'm like, this is my prophet. <clears throat> the least I could do <clears throat> is try to be like him. I'm not going to be perfect, but the least I could do is be thankful enough. I don't get dirt thrown in my face. I don't have to go home and check my pots to make sure there's no dead animals in there. I don't have to look at my doorstep to make sure there's no waste on there. The least I could do as a person who believes in him is just try. 
and I'm going to fail. I'm going to stumble, but I'm going to keep trying. Because when I meet him, inshallah, say inshallah, when we meet him, I want to be able to at least tell him I tried. I don't want to have the conversation with him where I didn't after all he went through. So you read these narrations and it, every one I read, it was like crushing my heart. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that like cries at movies, as you can tell. It crushes me when I see people like fictional characters go through pain. It, it kills me. Now imagine this person lived really in real life and he did this for us and he went through this subhanallah and there were moments where you cheer because allah got his back abu jahl one time was scheming to step on his neck while he was in sujood he said oh he puts his face in the dirt to worship his lord i'm gonna go step on his head when he's doing it and so all the Quraysh were like yeah and they all got around him and when he went abu jahl walked and he stopped and he stumbled backwards so imagine you see him walking towards the prophet he stumbled backwards and they're like, what's wrong? And Abu Jahl just says, you, you guys didn't see that? And they're like, what? And he's like, there was a massive pit of fire. And there was like this demon looking at me. And the Prophet them when the companions and him were talking about it later, he goes, that was Jibril. <laughs> and he goes, if he stepped one foot closer to me, Jibril would have ripped him to pieces. He's like, God's got my back. Right? So there are narrations where like, yeah, boy. And you start wiping up the tears, right? <laughs> but the empathy that we should have for the prophet that we should feel this connection this just immense gratitude thank you for doing that that's why when i go make umrah and i go in front of his 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 resting place i just say thank you because for me i'm just like what did i do to deserve this gift that you had to work so hard for so we thank allah for that we ask allah to make us more prophetic we ask Allah to give us the gift of being more prophetic and loving the Prophet and appreciating the things he did for us. We ask Allah to purify our hearts from all the rust and the difficulties and different things that we struggle with so that we can see this in a good light and become better in our hearts and our souls and our actions. If there's anyone going through any difficulty, we ask Allah to relieve them. If there's anyone who's experiencing any loss or challenges, we ask Allah to give them strength. Barakallah feekum everybody.